All right. Good morning, you guys. How are you guys doing? You'll be all right. Okay. Um, so we're in a series. If you guys knew, my name is Andy. I'm one of the pastors here at Restored. And we're in a series called Gospel Depth. Uh, and what we've been doing is looking at the, the book of Romans, which is a, a letter, is the epistle to the Roman church written by the Apostle Paul. And it's called Gospel Death because it's predicated on the idea that the gospel is like a well, that you don't get the, the best water by making the well um, you know, larger in circumference. You get the best water by drilling down deeper into uh, into the earth. And so in the same way, um, we don't, we're not transformed by having a, a random, wider, general breadth of knowledge, but we're transformed as we go deeper into who Jesus is and what he has done for us in the gospel. And Romans is all about digging deeper into the gospel. So real quick, I want to do a quick walkthrough of where we've been so far in our series covering Paul's epistle to the Romans. Um, Paul has spent the last uh, the first four chapters of Romans uh, setting the stage uh, for what we're going to talk about today. Uh, he showed us in chapters one and two in painful detail how all of humanity is not right with God and that we cannot make ourselves right with God through our performance. The idea that we cannot be justified by our obedience in the language of the New Testament. Then in chapter three, he revealed that we can be made right with God apart from the law. It's because Jesus fulfilled the law in our place. He lays out the fact that we can be made right with God or justified by trusting in what Jesus did for us in his death and resurrection, that he died the death that you and I deserve to die, and he rose again in victory. And if we trust in what he did for us, his righteousness is imputed or credited to us. This is what theologians call uh, justification by faith. Uh, last week, Maria Orta preached a phenomenal message, or so I heard. Um, yeah, it's a lot of Maria love uh, out of Romans chapter 4, and uh, where Paul makes it clear that it's always been the case throughout um, history that humans are justified through faith in God, not through their obedience to God's commands. And so for four chapters, Paul has been showing us our need for justification and how we can be justified. So for four chapters, he's given us the essentials of justification by faith. Now, in today's text, Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is going to move from explaining how justification happens and start to unpack what justification means for us once it has happened to us. In other words, Paul is going to answer the question, if we are justified by faith in Jesus, what difference does it make for our life now? both now and in the future. Yes, it's dealt with our past and our sin, but what about now and what about tomorrow? And he's going to reveal to us the benefits of justification that many of us didn't even know we had. Oftentimes when I talk to people who think they understand Christianity, when they unpack what they think it is, it's not what I believe at all or what the scriptures teach. Uh, it's often a sad blend of religion and guilt and shame and alienation and, um, and that kind of a thing, and, and, and drudgery. And as you see, as you look at these benefits today, I think you'll see it, it should not be that way. That if that's the case, we are, missing, we are missing out on the benefits package available to us in the gospel. Again, many of us have been followers of Jesus for a very long time, and we, we live beneath our privilege. 
as followers of Jesus. When I was thinking of this idea of not knowing the benefits we have access to, I thought of a story of my friend Brad Sarian. He's the lead pastor of Restored LA. Uh, he told me about 10 years ago. And at the time, Brad was a youth pastor at a church in Los Angeles, and he was meeting with a, a representative of a missions agency that sent youth groups on short-term missions trips. Uh, Brad actually hated short-term mission trips. Uh, the guy was like, I'll buy you lunch if you just hear me out. And he's like, I don't think I even agree with this, whatever. Um, and so he already wasn't that stoked about the meeting. Uh, and then on top of that, the guy was running late. And uh, Brad's an Enneagram one. He was there on time. He was there yesterday. And he's out front, and he sees this cat pull up. This guy who works for a very small missions nonprofit pulls up in a Porsche that's easily worth over $100,000 and he parks his car, and he walks up, and uh, Brad kind of looks at him, and he, he, I think he kind of knew. He just said, hey, don't judge me because I'm driving this car. I didn't buy it with any of the money from the ministry or from the salary I earned from the ministry. I actually want to just tell you a story. And then he ended up telling a story of the fact that, that this was a gift that was given to him um, for a very particular reason. Uh, he told Brad uh, that about 15 years prior, this guy, you can look this guy's story up. His name's uh, Richard Dietrich. Uh, he was a youth pastor at the time from the West Coast, and he led a, sh you wouldn't guess it, uh, a short-term missions trip to Europe. And they went to Poland. And while on the trip, he decided to surprise his wife. His wife is Polish, and he decided he was going to go to a place called Zary, Poland, to do a little genealogical work, a little Ancestry.com vibe. Uh, he wanted to grab a copy of the family tree. And, um, and so he shows up. Her maiden name was Promnitz. And according to family lore, her family originated from this small town in western Poland. Uh, upon arriving in Zary, he made his way to the city hall and asked if they had any information on the Promnitz family tree. Um, the clerk at the front desk seemed pretty startled. And he just tells Richard, uh, he's like, I need to talk to my boss before I can give you anything. And he's like, okay, I thought this was your job. He's like, I know, but this is different. And so he went to his boss, uh, who turned out to be the mayor of the city. And when Richard, when Richard introduced himself and yet again asked for the Promnitz family tree, after a moment of shocked silence, the mayor said, no, 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 you're all dead. You died 300 years ago. This is a problem. <laughs> Unbeknownst to Richard, his wife Brenda was a direct descendant of one of the oldest ruling families in Poland. Having ruled the region from the 1300s until the 1700s, Polish officials thought that the family had long since died out. Um, the Prominence family fled as refugees during the Thirty Years' War in the mid-1600s, ultimately immigrating to America, settling in the Midwest. And now Brenda and Richard were royalty, and they didn't even know it. Uh, the name Prominence appears in cemeteries, cathedrals, and palaces all across the region. They were heirs of an ancient kingdom made up of vast ancestral lands and estates, um, they found out that they had dozens of houses in their name. Dozens. One town official even apologized to them. He said, I'm so sorry, sir. Two months ago, we sold your castle to an investor. <laughs> Richard said in disbelief, I'm just trying to get a copy of my family tree. <laughs> the official replied, sir, Poland is a country of laws, and you are of the royal family von Promnitz. Whatever has your family name on it belongs to you. Uh, once the lineage was verified, Richard and Brenda were reinstated as royalty again. They found out they owned dozens of houses and a couple of castles. Classic, like, oh, man. It's like finding $5 in your jeans. You're like, dude, classic two castles I forgot about. Where'd this castle come from? And the key idea with this is that Richard and Brenda, 
were wealthy for a very long time and they didn't know it. They had access to all kinds of things that they did not know. They had been living beneath their privileges, living as if they weren't wealthy, even though they were. Now, in my experience as a pastor, I found that many people who claim to be followers of Jesus aren't aware of the benefits of the gospel. They don't understand the benefits of their justification. They don't enjoy the benefits of being united to Jesus and being a co-heir with Jesus, the king of the universe. And so um, that's what we're going to look at today. And I'm hoping that as I unpack this morning's text, that like Richard Dietrich, you will slowly start to see more of what is available to you spiritually because of what Jesus has done for you in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return that we're swept up in. And so what are the benefits we have of being made right with the king of the universe and being welcomed into his family? Which leads me to my outline this morning, and it's five points, guys. Um, But relax, two of them are fast. It's this, because we are justified, we are one, uh, one, we are, um, we have peace with God. Because we are justified, we live in grace. Because we're justified, we can rejoice in hope in the midst of suffering. I know no one, that, that's not going to help anyone this morning, 2021. Because we're justified, we know the greatest love. Because we're justified, we can enjoy God. And so I'm going to work through these. We may get through three, and I do two next week. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm starting to understand why Romans go so slow, uh, all the old preachers. There's like so much good stuff here. Again, guys, like AM, PM, too much good stuff. All right. So Romans chapter 5, because the Bible starts to Romans chapter 5, we're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, therefore. All right. Now, uh, we'll just stop, okay? One word. Um, therefore, is an important word. As you, un, uh, my hermeneutics professor in Bible college, this guy taught me how to interpret the Bible. He said, whenever you see a therefore, you want to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? It's cheesy, but it's helpful, okay? Um, and so therefore means in light of what you just heard, what I'm about to tell you makes sense, okay? Um, so what's, what's following is not a non sequitur. It actually lines right up with what I've been talking about. In light of the fact that you have been justified here is what you need to know, all right? So Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we can have peace with God. So again, number one, we, we have peace with God. Because we're justified, we have peace with God. Um, the peace with God he refers to here is not a subjective feeling that like floods our hearts with a sense of calm. Uh, It's an objective reality that Jesus' death has created for us. Feelings are important, all right? But feelings come and go. It's the reality of our standing with God that is important. Uh, As a church, we're all about emotional health. We'll talk to you about that all day long. And for many of you, we have. We've done series on emotional health, okay? Uh, Sermon series. Uh, We're all about it. But here's the thing. We want you to pay attention to your emotions, not to be enslaved to them. Emotions are a gift that help us ask what's going on inside of me. They're not, you know, train conductors telling you where to go. And I point this out because a lot of people think that the primary purpose of faith or religion or or whatever is to give you a therapeutic feeling of peace. That comes and goes, okay? Um, But the fact that you have peace with God is the thing that is always consistent, 
Um, and again, people even say this, oh man, that's cool, like Christianity works for you. When they say works for you, what they mean is you feel peace. Like, man, when I want to feel peace, you know, I do yoga, I take long walks on the beach, I eat kale, I drink a hazy IPA, I just rub essential oils all over my bod, whatever. That, that peace isn't the, that a feeling of peace isn't all that Christianity offers. C.S. Lewis said this, I love this quote. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. C.S. Lewis. But more important than a feeling of peace is whether you actually have peace with God. Again, we should base our feelings on what, what we know to be true. I will start to feel a peace in my heart because I know I have a peace with God, not vice versa. If I'm like, do I feel like I'm at peace with God? That determines whether or not I am. That's, 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 that's a very hard life. That's a very hard um, way to live. One scholar says this, he says, Christian peace is rooted in something objective, the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Certain experience can give one a sense of peace, but the ultimate peace is not found in the gifts of creation, but in the creator himself who has reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus. Sin has created the problem of alienation from God, and there is only one cure, Jesus. It is impossible to know the peace of God if you do not have peace with God. Paul is speaking of an, of an objective peace that comes from being counted righteous. So we, we should have experiential peace, but we often aren't always going to feel it. We live in a fallen world. Uh, we still sin every once in a while. Uh, people do that to us. We have fallen bodies. You have planes that make noise when you're trying to talk. Like, it's a fallen world, guys. But family, if we have peace with God, there's nothing around us that can truly crush us. All right, let's keep reading. Five, uh, verse 2. This is our next benefit. So we have peace with God. Huge. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Another benefit of justification is we live in grace. We live in grace. And think of the word grace here as favor. Because Paul's focus at this point is less on getting mercy for our sins and more about the favored status we have with God. We exist in a favored status. To live in grace is to be like a child, who, kind of like what they feel with a parent who they know loves them. Not an unhealthy relationship with a parent, but a healthy relationship with a parent. To stand in grace is to be in the, for, the favor of God because of Jesus forever. Think favor, think access. Because of Jesus, you now have the same father Jesus had. This means the father now loves you as much as he loved Jesus. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you are sharing in the righteousness of Jesus and you're united to him by faith, you now have the same standing with God the Father as Jesus. And so well-pleased Greeks, infinitely pleased. I could not be more pleased with you. This is why um, to, to view Christianity as a religion of guilt doesn't make sense if you understand it because your guilt's gone. You stand in favor. And it shouldn't lead to self-righteousness because it's the righteousness of Jesus that has 
obtain that favor and that access to you. This means the king of the universe is well pleased with you, which means what people think about you doesn't define you. Because the, the guy who created all of them, the most important person in the world, adores you. So you're not defined by your work or your bank account or your clothes or how many likes or hearts or whatever. I'm not on social media, but whatever's going on that's positive on social media, that feels positive, whatever gives you a dopamine rush on social media. Well, I don't know if it's positive, but you're not defined by any of that stuff. It also means you have access, you have access to the Father. Um, my kids know they have access to Jackie and I because they feel free to knock on our bedroom door whenever they want at very inconvenient times. They also feel free if the door's open and it's nighttime, or it doesn't matter what time of night or morning, they feel free to just walk right up to our bedside and start talking to us. That's access. What other relationship? You just walk into a room and go, I need water. Over the course of the night, the excuses make less and less sense. Like, my finger hurts, but it's a, like an owie, but you can't see it. But, but here's the idea. The reason they do that is they have a confidence that we love them and that we have the power to help them. Um, at this point in their life, most of the trouble they can get into, we can help them figure out, generally. So go, you love us and you have the power to help us. This is the access we have to the Father. But he's not just any Father. He is the King of the universe. Uh, I heard Nicky Gumbel, uh, he leads the Alpha Course, he, he told this story I thought was so helpful. It says, during the American Civil War, as a result of a family tragedy, there were multiple uh, brothers who had been killed in combat, kind of a Saving Private Ryan vibe. A soldier was granted permission to seek a hearing from the president, Abraham Lincoln. He wanted to request exemption from the rest of his military service. However, when he arrived at the White House, he was refused entry and sent away. He went and sat in a nearby park. A young boy came across him and remarked how unhappy he looked. The soldier found himself telling the young boy everything. Eventually, the boy said, come with me. This kid's like 10, 11 years old. He led the dejected soldier back to the White House. They went around the back. None of the guards stopped them. Even the generals and high-ranking government officials stood to attention and let them pass through. The soldier was amazed. Finally, they came to the presidential office. Without knocking, the young boy opened the door and walked straight in. Abraham Lincoln, standing there, turned from his conversation with the Secretary of State and said, what can I do for you, Tad? Tad said, Dad, this soldier needs to talk to you. The soldier eventually was granted the request. The soldier had access to the president through the son. According to the New Testament, in an even more amazing way, you and I have access to God through the son. Many people pray, but they don't assume they have access and favor. Tad's not like, hey, Dad, like, like, right, just if, if it's the president, even your dad, you think you'd be like, hey, man, I, I know you're talking to the Secretary of State. We've got a war going on. Um, my, fr my friend here, he's not really my friend, a guy I met in the park. Just with, you know, you, there'd be a little trepidation. He's like, hey, I'm Tad, your dad. Can you do something rad, right? Prayer is an immense privilege. We're able to speak to this Father who knows us and sees us and loves us. All of everyone you've ever met has a desire to be known and loved. We have a father who knows more about us than we know about ourselves and loves us more than we love ourselves. 
So, so being the kind of person who approaches God the Father with what they need is someone who understands what it means to stand in grace. Which leads to our next benefit, and boy, do we need this during a global pandemic, but really all throughout our lives. Let's keep reading. Romans 5, verses 3 through 4. So we'll pick up at the end of verse 2. It says, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. We can rejoice in hope in the midst of suffering. We can rejoice in hope in the midst of suffering. To live in this world is to suffer. But we don't have to suffer like everyone in this world. Paul says, rejoice in afflictions. What does that mean? Uh, Paul is not like a masochist where he's just like, I love pain for pain's sake. Just showing you guys how tough I am. I'm the apostle Paul. No, this is rejoicing in affliction because you know the, that the affliction, no matter how great, isn't the greatest thing. Uh, Christians, by the way, are not Stoics. Again, we pay attention to our emotions and our bodies and the world we live in. A Stoic is someone who is unmoved by pain. They're detached. If, if, I, think, if I don't care about this, I won't be hurt. But we're called to not just care but love the people around us. We're called to feel deeply. Um, again, this is Buddhism, not Christianity. Buddhism teaches you to not feel pain by detaching yourself from the world and not really loving anything. But Christianity pushes you into the world to experience it, to feel it, to taste it, to smell it, to love, to grieve. Jesus himself modeled this. Jesus had a remarkable emotional maturity. Jesus said... In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he would go to the cross to die for you and me, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I'm so sad I could die. Friends, if you've ever been so sad you wish you were dead, Jesus understands. And not only, not only does he, he understand, like, like he, he lived it. And I hope that encourages you because I think for a lot of us, we think if I'm obeying and it feels painful and I don't have like a, a, an attitude that I love the pain, something's wrong with me. Jesus shows us obedience is painful. He prays to the Father, can you please do a different thing? And he says, no. Faithfulness and obedience and maturity isn't doing what we feel like or what feels easy. It's moving forward even when it's hard. And so, so Jesus, he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. But we also know that for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. That there was something bigger that was taking shape in the midst of and even through his pain. That his pain wasn't the final word. The cross wasn't the final word. He wasn't looking forward to the cross. Guys, he wasn't skipping to the cross. He wasn't like touchdown dancing to the cross. It's like, man, I, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, but for the joy set before him, he went to it. So, so as followers of Jesus, we can rejoice because we have a hope that God is doing something in the midst of our suffering. So how can the gospel help us find joy in the midst of our suffering? A couple of reasons. First is we know what suffering isn't. It isn't 
meaningless. You, you, you embrace a fully secular worldview, suffering is, is meaningless. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and you got eat, eaten. But the other thing we know that suffering isn't, we, we also don't carry what religion carries. Suffering isn't punishment. We don't believe in karma where, where we get punished for the, for the bad things we've done day in and day out. If God wanted to get us, he wouldn't have sent Jesus to die for us. He got Jesus on the cross. He may discipline us for our good, but he never punishes us to make us pay. As followers of Jesus, we can say, I do not know what God is up to in my suffering, but I know for sure what he isn't up to. He isn't punishing me. And whether I'm aware of his presence or not, he is with me. He loves me. He is helping me get through, even if it's painful. I think of Jesus when he, he tells Peter, I'm praying for you. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying that, you know, that you'll en endure. And we see he goes through a tough time. He denies Jesus three times. But he's still faithfully moving forward. He gets restored. He keeps moving forward. It's not how fast you're going. It's what direction are you heading. But, but he's with him. So we know our suffering isn't meaningless, and we know it's not punishment. Um, the second way the gospel helps us rejoice in the midst of suffering is we know that suffering can produce something beautiful. This does not mean we should uh, pursue suffering because it could, something beautiful could come of it. Um, this doesn't mean that, um, by the way, this also doesn't mean don't be a terrible comforter. Never tell people what their suffering means because you don't know, Okay. Just stop. There's a lot you can tell them it isn't. But, but don't tell them what it is. But, but we do know God's doing something. And we know that he takes something really messy and turns it into something really beautiful. Uh, my wife has uh, delivered three babies. Uh, I know it's like cool to be like we're pregnant and we're having, giving birth. No, she gave birth. She deserves the credit. All right? Now, I got to tell you, while that's going on, right, like if, you, if we were to do a quiz and go, hey, ladies, how many of you would pick this way to bring children into this world? There was another way, would you guys be down? Right? Yeah. Eat lasagna, drink some red wine, baby. But, but the thing is, is the minute that baby's out and you see it, see them, <laughs> see her or him, the pain really does start to slowly subside, and you're overwhelmed with who's in front of you. Suffering, something that is painful, can, can, can bear fruit, but it's not pleasant while it's happening, but it's worth it when it's done. I, I do know, I, I don't know what God exactly is doing in you, but I know he's committed to making you like Jesus. And Jesus, the, the character of Jesus is the fruit of the Spirit. He's making you someone who's loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good. You're like, how is he making joyful if I don't have any joy because I'm suffering? Well, he's going to show you that you need less to have joy than you thought. It's one thing you could do of, of a millions. He's making us gentle. He's teaching us self-control. So as followers of Jesus, we can say, I don't know exactly what God is producing in me, but he is making me look more like Jesus. That I do know. 
what aspect of Jesus, the timeline on that project, that's all his business, not mine. Again, this text says affliction leads to endurance and endurance um, leads to proven uh, character. Uh, you need to know this endurance is in there because this isn't a fast process. It's slow. I was talking to a friend the other day, and, and, um, and she was just saying, hey, man, I'm suffering, but it hasn't led to the character I, I would have thought it would have created yet. And I just want to say it takes time. And I'm guilty of this, too. I like to be comfortable. Christians in the West, we, I think we think, like, suffering is real weird. And even the Bible, it's like, don't, when you suffer, don't think something strange is happening to you. It says that. And we're like, why am I suffering? Family, this is, this is going to happen, and it takes time. Life in a fallen world involves suffering. It's in the process of being restored fully, this world and us. So we can rejoice in suffering because we have a hope that it will produce something. This reality that none of God's children's suffering is meaningless. He really is working everything out for our good, and our greatest good is to become like and be with Jesus. And suffering, I, I just talked about it, it helps you become like Jesus, but also it, it pushes you towards him. Uh, recently, we had a, a real wild scare where it looked like a, a, a member of, a very close member of our family was going to die. Not one of our kids, but one of our um, siblings. And it pushed all of us into prayer. It pushed all of us uh, towards Jesus. And so our greatest good is to become like Jesus and to be with Jesus. Um, the third way the gospel helps us rejoice in the midst of suffering is that we know how it ends. The gospel tells us how this thing ends. Um, um, uh, my counselor was telling my wife and I um, why it's important that we vacation as leaders, why this is a big deal. And he said the research shows that the benefits tied to a vacation start the minute the trip is booked, the minute you click whatever, unless you didn't have the money for it and you're like, regret hits. You're like, I shouldn't have done that. But if you, you're buying it, in a, in a re, you're not going into debt to do it. You're, you're doing it responsibly, all that stuff. Um, uh, because there's a hope or a positive anticipation that starts to build in you. I can get through this tedious work. You know, I'm not talking about me, by the way. I love my work, guys. You're my work and you're wonderful, Okay. But, but there's days where maybe some of you are challenging for a little while, like all of us can be. Um, and again, one of the privileges of my job, I see people at their best. One of the pains of my job, I definitely see people at their worst, okay? And, um, uh, but, but whatever, but you guys get what I'm saying. Oh, my gosh. But, but, but the benefit happens the minute you book it. The benefit starts to wane when you realize you're closer to going home than you were before. Like whenever they're at a point in the trip that happens, right? And the benefits really wear off a few weeks after getting back. Now, our hope of the future is the opposite. We have something we're looking towards. And if you're not, you should be. We can make this a cop-out. And by the way, the church absolutely has made, like, made too much of heaven and not care enough about the world. Um, but there's also a way you can not make enough of heaven. This is a painful place to live. And until you suffer deeply, you don't know the hope of heaven as it should be. But when you're there, the hope of heaven is, is meaningful. That one day Jesus will make everything right and there will be no going back. It'll be, it will be a world where every tear will be dried, all pain will be gone, 
death itself will no longer be a reality. And it gets better and better and better. I love this quote. It's the, the last page of the Chronicles of Narnia. It says, now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth had read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. It gets better and better and better. Family, when we remember how the story ends, we're much more able to deal with the ups and downs of life. The gospel is the good news of Jesus, not just that he died and he rose, but that he will come again and he will make the world, he will heal the world. Uh, you guys might have experienced this, by the way. I don't know if you've ever watched, um, I remember uh, if you ever watched a movie that the first time you see it, you're like real stressed out for the characters. First time I saw The Lion King, I was like, oh my gosh, Scar is going to win. This is not good. I remember, um, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago now, um, the, you know, our, our family's from Boston. We're watching the, uh, one of the many Patriots Super Bowls. It's hard to know the number, okay? You know, Charger fans, you guys have one. You're like, we know the number. I'm like, dude, I, I don't know. But, but I remember, they were, right, like they, they were down, uh, whatever, they were up by four, and the Seahawks were at the one-yard line. They had two plays. They had the, the best power running back in football. Instead of passing the ball, they passed it. It was intercepted. It should have been a touchdown with basically no time. Malcolm Butler, I, I cried. I cried. It was out of hand. It's a desperate situation. And now I can, watch that. I can watch that Super Bowl, no problem now. No problem. I'm like, oh, I love it. It's, the plot thickens. It gets better. It's going to be even sweeter in a second. Guys, we know how this thing ends. We, we, our suffering is not the final world in our, in our life. And by the way, we're not stoics. We can feel it. We need to grieve. We need to be honest about the pain that we're in. But we also need to be honest about the fact that the pain isn't the ultimate thing. And it's not going to last. It's not. And if we're too cool for that or like too beyond that, like Christianity has no hope for you. There's a future reality to our faith. We need all of the gospel. Jesus coming, living, dying, rising, but also returning. We can be a people who rejoice in hope for a lot of those reasons. And there's some more, but now we're going to move to Romans 5, 5. It says, this hope will not disappoint us, this anticipation we have, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Guys, every other hope will disappoint. Some of you guys are hopeful. Uh, I'm Enneagram 7. I'm a chronic reframer. I like to feel better about stuff. I'm like, well, we didn't all die. Like, dude, three-fifths of your family, you know. Like, hey, we, you know. I don't know. I can't think of any good tragedies. But um, I, I just reframe stuff, right? Like, I'm like, man, we're three hours late. But, man, what a, what a great day. We're together, you know. Some of us, we, we just reframe. You know, our hope is just we're optimistic. Some of you guys are hopeful uh, because you think that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, which is a lie. There are a lot of things that just hurt, and they stay hurting until you die. There's a book on how um, trauma impacts our body. It's called The Body Keeps Score. Um, you don't need to read it, uh, it's, but, but, but I will say this. Um, the research is showing, man, that, that we are impacted for a very long time by living in a fallen world. So it, sometimes it doesn't kill you, it makes you weaker, and that, that can be true. By the way, I'm all about helping people overcome their challenges. I'm just saying there's some challenges we may not overcome in this life, and that's okay, because we do have a hope that's greater than overcoming the challenge ourselves with our own resources in this life. Some of you guys seek hope by numbing yourself. 
kind of self-medicating, drugs, alcohol, uh, material things, money, sexual pleasure, um, which by the way, if you pursue those things for hope, it will always end badly. Enjoying a good gift's one thing, um, but pursuing it to, to numb the pain in your soul, it will not work. It'll work for a second, and you'll end up with a lot more soul pain down the line. But Paul says, I have a better hope than any of these things. Um, one that does not disappoint. Um, this is the first mention of the Holy Spirit uh, in the book of Romans. If you guys, if you guys, I don't know if you guys have noticed that. And here's what I want you to see is the Holy Spirit, Jesus told us, would make known to us what Jesus did. He will remind us of God's love. He's remember the Trinity that, that takes the Father's love and makes it feel real. Where it's not just something you know cognitively, but you feel it. You're aware of it. And one of the ways that he's going to do that often is by bringing you back to what Jesus did for you. Verses 6 to 7. Look at the last benefit for today. It says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. The last benefit of justification I want to look at is this, is we can know the greatest love. So we can rejoice in the midst of suffering, um, but, but we can know the greatest love. And Paul's logic here, it's, it's, it's this, is that every once in a while, someone can do a brave act of, you know, heroism or, or loving sacrifice, right? Um, uh, Danny Kimlot, the pastor of Restored South Bay, he has told a story many times he told a story many times that when he was uh, being born, that the doctors came to him and said, there's a very good chance that we're going to have to pick between you and the life of your son. What do you want to do? And she said, I'm picking the life of my son. She signed a paper to save his life. Now, luckily, they, they both lived. But, but there are definitely times in life where a parent um, or a, a beautiful, dutiful person will, will jump in, you know, a great act of sacrifice and love. But that isn't what Jesus did for us. Um, Romans 5.8 says, says this. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Here's the thing. God laying down his life uh, sorry, God, Jesus laying down his life for you and me is not like me or Danny's mom laying down our life for our kids. These aren't our kids, they're our enemies. Jesus dies for his enemies. This is laying down your life for someone who hurt you or stole from you or cheated on you or slandered you or tried to kill you. Jesus dies for that person. And Paul goes, no one does this. Maybe someone would die for a good person that's good to them. Right? Jesus said, if you love people that love you, even people that don't know Jesus, God can do that. Right? Everyone loves people that love them. But, but he doesn't just teach love his enemies. He loved his enemies. And you and I were his enemies, friends. In this passage, we see how great God's love, love is for us in the gospel. We see it in a couple of different ways. Uh, the first one is this, is we see the cost of his love. We see this extravagant sacrifice. I don't know if you've ever um, had someone tell you they love you, but they clearly don't. 
where someone says the words I love you, but their actions communicate something completely different. Where it feels like a um, like just cognitive dissonance. I remember sitting with a couple one time, and, and one of the spouses had, had com- confessed to adultery, and uh, and was also saying, "Hey, I don't want to stay m- married to you." The other party was saying, "Hey, I'm willing to forgive you and move forward." They said, "I don't want to. I love you. I just don't want to be in your life. I just don't want to talk to you." So I'm like, "So you commit adultery, and you're pushing them away, and you don't ever want to see them, but you love them." And I had to actually say, um, "I need you to stop saying you love him." Like, I, I don't think we know what that means, and it's super unhelpful. We've all had moments in our life where someone said they loved us, but clearly by their actions, they didn't. This is not the case with Jesus. It's not like a God loves you. <laughs> it's, it's God loves you in a very specific way. I'll call the worship team on up here. Um, again, we see this uh, in, in Jesus' extravagant sacrifice. One scholar said this. He said, God did not merely say he loved sinners. He acted on their behalf by putting forward Christ in their place. And Jesus willingly gave himself up, paying a price we never fully comprehend. He would leave heaven for earth. He would, leave a, he, he would live a sinless life. He would be betrayed. He would be abandoned. He would be tortured. He would endure the Father's wrath in place of those who deserve it. Let's never lose sight of the cost of our salvation. And let's remember that Christ's love is not the reason is not only the reason we are saved, but also the example of love we are to have as we seek to love others. This wasn't love with words. This was love with deed. And so we see the greatness of his love and what it cost him, but also the fact that we were unworthy of it. That we were his enemies. Read from Romans 5, 8 on, and then we'll, we'll move into communion here. It says, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. If he died for you while you were his enemy, how much more is he for you now that you're adopted into his family? You have a father, you have a savior, you have a brother, you have a Lord who is a Lord, but he is also your friend. We are saved by his life. Again, if his blood secured my forgiveness, then his life guarantees that what God started, he'll complete. His life proves that I have someone who is for me. He's a king using his sovereign power to make all things work together for good. I have someone on my side who one day will resurrect me like he has been resurrected, who will wipe away every tear, who will make every sad thing come untrue, make every injustice right, and heal our souls to the uttermost. This is who we have. This is who we've been reconciled to. In the book Gospel by J.D. Greer, he writes, The cross of Jesus proves his love for me that he'll never leave me. The resurrection proves his power, that he will finish the job. 
I know you guys are all in different spaces this morning, going through different things. Some of you guys are feeling the weight of suffering. Some of you guys are feeling like you really need God. Um, uh, Maria and I will be over here. Uh, we'd love to pray for you. Um, if any other Jesus leaders want to pray for people. But if you feel like, man, I, I do feel like I am suffering, or I do feel like I'm going through a tough season, I would love to encounter the Spirit pouring the love of God into my heart in a fresh way. We'd love to pray for you. We're not going to explain your suffering. We can't. But we'd love to remind you of the one who's with you in your suffering, who suffered in your place to, to be reconciled to you, to be, to be present with you. You might be wondering, Andy, you just said there's no meaningless suffering for God's children. You know, what is the meaning in my suffering? And again, I, I don't know, but I do know what it can't mean. It can't mean that he's forgotten you or that he's given up on you. The cross shows you he hasn't forgotten you. And because he hasn't forgotten us, we know he's going to come back for us. And so um, right now um, we're going to take communion uh, and then we'll, we'll jump into musical worship. I want to encourage you to sing. Like, if he really did these things for us, he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of our song. He's worthy of our life. And so we'll take communion and then we'll stand. It's gotta be the only church where it sounds like uh, Christmas morning. It's like unwrapping gifts. Time you uh, hit communion. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your life, for your birth, for your death, for your resurrection, for your ascension, and for your second return, your second coming. We're so grateful for what you've done and what you've provided for us. We need you more than we know, if we're honest. And as we take this, um, for those who are followers of Jesus, as we take um, this wafer and this juice as we remember your body and your blood. Holy Spirit, would you pour out the love of God into our hearts in a fresh way? Would you remind us of something? Would you, would you say something to us? Would you, would you remind us of who you are and what you've done? Not just for the world, but for us. God for, for my sins and you're coming back for me as much as you died for someone else's you're coming back for them this is a per personal savior who's given me very personal benefits as a co-heir so we love you Jesus it's your name we pray amen